Welcome to Burke's After Dark, where conversations about the deepest disturbances in existence are overheard. I'm your primary investigator, Anna D'Souza, a PhD student at McGill School of Religious Studies. Tonight's recording is the last recording I found this semester. It overhears my colleagues, Sabina Shaikh and Svati Chowden, talking about poetry, love, and having good people in your life. Do not be alarmed if you experience atypical auditory material. These recordings are in varying states of decay. This episode in particular seems to have some oddities close to the end. Remember to keep your whiskey close and your safety blanket closer. But like on mass because they're like hateful and bears are bears. That's perfect for bears. But that's that's like he's a modernist. You, you have to remember that there's like the classical Urdu poetry. That's amazing. So tell me more. I love so poetry. Good. I never get to do it. So poetry hybrid. I work on poetry, on Urdu poetry, um, from the pre-modern period, um, and... What region? What region? Oh. I work specifically on courtesans from South India. So courtesans are, I don't know if people are familiar, I, I always give this example, but it's also another cultural example. Geishas, if ever anybody has seen like memoirs of a geisha or read the book. Uh, courtesans across the world were these women who were remarkably talented in uh, literature and classical dance, singing, art forms of all different types, magic, which would be kind of cool. Um, I'm trying to slowly find that information. We learned the word for magic today. What do you mean? Is with a J. Yeah. Yadu? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was very funny. And there was a story about a, a bear. Mahashaji is trying to get to school, and then he forgets the road, and he ends up in a forest, a jungle. And then there's a magician on a white bear who, like, <laughs> comes across him in the woods. And this sounds like a very to... Pasha thing. Oh, yeah. If, was... <laughs> if you are familiar with, with Pasha Khan, my supervisor's work, he works on kissas and dastans, so, like, kind of like fantastical epics with, you know, like lots of magical beasts and really improbable situations happening. So this sounds like definitely an exercise we would pull out from one of his glasses. But um, yeah, in poetry, there is this entire genre of, you know, classical uh, South Asian poetry that follows a tradition from Arabic and Persian uh, that is very highly ornate and romantic and beautiful. Um, and then in the later periods, especially with people like Fez Ahmed Fez and the other progressive writers who are uh, trying to create poetry uh, that represents or reflects the injustices of society or of, you know, the kind of terrible socioeconomic conditions, it turns into something else. It turns political, um, it turns revolutionary. And that kind of happens at the turn of the 20th century with people like Iqbal and Fez. Yeah, in puzzles, but also in, in different genres as well. Um, and so I work on pre-modern poetry uh, and written by women, which is hard to find. It's very, very difficult to find from before, you know, the 18th century. A lot of the poetry that exists is written in Persian because that was the lingua franca in or at least a bureaucratic and literary language in India for a very long time, for about a thousand years. Um, so many of the, the princesses and, and elite women, noble women, are writing in Persian poetry. But my interests are kind of of these particular women who are, are courtesans, entertainers, performers, and the Urdu poetry that they wrote, 
um, because the earliest manuscripts that we have of them, which I'm working with, are from the late 18th century. And so... Yeah. Do they, would they like perform it or did they like yes. write it for other people to read it? You know, I don't, I don't actually think other people would be reading their poetry. Um, it's a remarkable feat in itself that they are writing poetry and it's actually being published. You know, like they have like a manuscript for it. Um, Do they have like their own divans? Exactly. So okay. the two courtesans that I'm working with, they are the earliest female uh, poets who have their own divan, a complete divan. And in order to have a complete divan, an anthology of poetry, you have to have one ghazl, so one um, lyric poem, for every alphabet letter, um, so from alif to uh, ye, at least one. And it's often not that you just have one, you know, ghazl for each, you know, they'll have something like 30 ghazls for the, the, um, the letter alif. And this is for the the last, how do I say this, the, the last part of the, the actual line of the shade. It has to end in a lift or an Ooh. a or an a or something like that. So, um, yeah, I, I work on poetry and, and I think you would, you would love to kind of get, slowly get back into it. And Pasha offers a great course every couple of years, the Urdu poetry course, that is accessible for anybody who can read Devnagri. So if you can read the Hindi oh, okay. that's or Urdu. Because, yeah, I mean, it's built, one of my ambitions is at some point to learn to compose a gazel. Ah, uh, no. I can't compose. Yes. I tried. I, there was once a class where they forced us to compose mm-hmm. ten, 10 verses in the actual examiner. And it was a shit show. Trust me, right? It was, it was so nothing awful. like that. No. Do you, do you like poetry? We, we left. We had to compose a worse in a science class. No, I don't like poetry. You could try. We'd read it. I'd read it. What are I did <laughs> write a pretty good course. Yes. Oh, can you recite it for us? Do you have it memorized or on your phone or something? Can you? Can you? Is it in meter? Yeah, so we have to What's write the it. meter, though? I don't so know if I would have done the meter. Yeah, but like, what, what does that mean? Like, what's the order of, like, long? Is it like long and short syllables or is it like particular sound? Uh, yeah, the long and short syllables. Because, but we're talking about Urdu, not Sanskrit. Well, we can, we we can, can talk about Urdu, let's say. Please! <laughs> it would be yeah. great. No, it will take a lot of time to open. I will sing it. It will take a time to open up. We okay. can continue our conversation. Cool. But, okay, wait. So, the poetry is in Persian. The ones Persian. that I'm working on are in Persian. actually Dakni, which is, is kind of a... It's not exactly a... A dialect of Urdu. Uh, Dakini is a type of Urdu that has um, lots of South Indian words thrown into it mm. and colloquialisms because it's spoken in the Deccan, the Deccan plateau that separates um, North India from South India. And so it has like some Telugu terminology and some, you know, kind of phrases and, and terms that aren't necessarily used in classical Urdu from North India. It's so. one of those things when people who do that would get you in the room like, oh, it's just like Urdu. You know it. You get there, you know nothing <laughs> except the last two words. <laughs> Wait, that happened with me. So is that what you felt in, in the, the text? Not that day, though. Okay. Not yeah. that day. I feel like it wasn't that bad. No, this is what happened to me <laughs> in my... We had like a uh, 
Indo-Islamic Millennium Poetry Class back oh. in undergrad. And yeah, I signed up for that class. Yeah, okay. Ooh, do I know that? It did not go well. Yeah, especially for a lot of classical Urdu poetry, it's very Persianate and it's highly ornate. So even for people who've grown up speaking it fluently, it's difficult to understand. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll be talking to my parents and I'll be reading them, you know, like these 18th century ghazals, and they're like, so, <laughs> "That's so cool that you read them." Yeah, and they'll and and I'll I'll be calling them because I'm like, "Mom, this is like a really strange word," and I learned Urdu, you know, speaking at home in the West through years of you know education here but my parents are from pakistan so you know they had a completely different urdu education and i'll call them up and i'll be like what is this word what does this mean is this an idiomatic phrase and they're like i have no idea what you're saying <laughs> this, is, oh, no. this is weird Thank stuff you. but it's because you know the pre-modern is is almost a completely different register well totally i know that there's more that they did well the politics of standardizing hindi was like a lot yeah and like the different ways that they dislocated like bits and pieces and like stitched it together to be like a standard language that's going to be the national language i don't know my wife's talking about politics and things um but i'm also like so urdu poetry in the south mm-hmm. yeah because at least right now like less urdu more hindi but the politics of language in the south is kind of on fire yeah. a little bit. It's been on fire for a little it's bit. It's on fire everywhere. Yeah, but also I mean, my state is, like northern languages. My state fights that like they, they do that our language is different from Hindi. So, which, which state is this? Haryana. Okay. It's everywhere. Yeah, but I that is, well, one of my friends, he's from Kerala, and the one thing that like if you he's like pretty cantankerous generally, um, but it's just like really want to see him pissed off, like really, really, really angry. Like, it's getting him talking about the pervasiveness of Hindi in the South. Like, he really, it's like, really, it's like a flashpoint. I don't know. Oh, you really hate your friend. <laughs> no, I don't hate him. It's true. That's what you talk, language politics. Yeah, no, that's, I would say. He didn't admit it. It's not like a secret. It's very much not, not a secret. secret. It's a very, like, it's just big get, political thing. It's, I don't know. Yeah, the opposite of the secret. It's a big political thing. It just gets people riled up. It never progresses, but it just makes things worse for you. You know, I think it's an interesting point to bring up how, you know, your emotions and your cultural identity and um, so much is tied to, to language. Totally. Um, so I kind of understand where people from all of these other regions are coming from. I mean, even Quebec, with, you know, like <laughs> French, Especially English. Uh, like Swati said, it's like a universal control, uh, like phenomenon. How, how intertwined it is with your own sense of self. And perhaps that's why it's it has the triggering possibility of inviting yeah, totally. you. Very well, So that's why I'm curious, but do they, are there, what are the, are there political tones <clears throat> in their usage or is it like, yeah, are there any dimensions of like a, a, this language comes from elsewhere mm-hmm. or is it like oh this language is ours and i have no qualms about using it like that's the i don't i don't think that in the divans that i'm working with um they're they're kind of metal analyzing their use of language in particular um i would say that there's definitely you know, communal maybe not communal vibes but they have like their own <clears throat> 
personal sensitivities and subjectivities that are shining through in their poetry. And that's kind of the, the basis of my dissertation. I'm trying to see how I can read poetry in an um, almost, uh, not antithetical, but like counterintuitive way by reading some kind of... Like biographical? Yeah, because uh, we don't have a lot of information about these women, and it's unfortunate. I, I think that it's so fascinating, and they've been hyper-exoticized and eroticized in, in novels, films, television, for songs, everything, for about 200 years. And yet everything that we have about courtesans is written by men or mm. from a patriarchal perspective, not written from their own perspective. Yeah. And so in the kind of, uh, in the absence of this, you know, personal information, I'm using the divan that is actually, you know, it says it's written by her, it's by the famous Diaz. So I'm like, okay, we have a divan, what can we say about this divan? And in this divan, she uses different genres and kind of uh, interesting ways. The Masnavi, which is kind of a, a, a long free verse poem in almost an autobiographical way, which is what I'm trying to say. Because she's talking about her life. She's talking about very quotidian examples of growing up and having to leave the home, her education, her religious education, being married, you know, all of these kind of details of her, her husband dying, what it means oh. for her. And then intertwined with a lot of the, the ghazals, the lyric poems, and in other you know, genres in this divan, because it's composed of a bunch of different genres of poetry. Um, she's also talking about her religious sensibilities. Uh, it seems that she's quite devoutly Shia, which makes sense because there's a huge Shia population um, in South India. Really? Yeah, in, in places like Hyderabad um, or Aurangabad. And, um, and so this comes through in you know, the choice of how she personifies the beloved or um, you know, the, the supplications or like the, um, I don't know, maybe the way she's addressing you know, the reader. It's with, with a lot of heavily Shia ornate vocabulary that perhaps a Sunni person would do here and there, but not as much as, as she does. Um, How would that be different? Different? Yeah, that's very interesting. Like, what's so peculiar about a Shia person describing the beloved? It's not that the Shia person is describing the beloved, but describing the vocabulary of respect. Yeah, exactly. Like using metaphors that are, um, you know, about Ali or like, um, Ali's family, um, his horse, his, his sword. Um, yeah, like the different names for Hazrat Ali. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different ways that you can personify the beloved. And, and even Sunni poets from North India have, have in particular genres taken upon, you know, like this Shia uh, imagery or um, metaphors. That's totally normal. But to see it to this extent throughout the divan, throughout so many genres, you know, at an excessive level, you have to kind of understand that, okay, she, she really is trying to, to say something about her own kind of religious, I don't know, space. Interesting. What kind of education was... Or did she? What did she reference? Yeah, it would. It was like um, usually like tutors. Um, if you if you grow up, I guess in pre-modern India, and you have like the means, or you're, yeah, if you're kind of like a a middle class or upper middle class person, 
Um, you might have tutors coming to your home because as women, you're supposed to be behind the farda. That's like the respectable thing to do. Um, so she mentions a lot of tutors and uh, and then like obviously religious training as well, where you have like um, either an elder aunt or like another woman or maybe um, the maulvi from the local masjid who comes and trains a group of students in Quran recitation and how to pray and things like that. Um, and then there's also a lot of information about how her husband, who is also a poet, um, would, the one who dies, the one who dies, would um, you know, tweak or fix or um, provide corrections. The word that we use is isla uh, to correct some of her poetry, which is what you would normally have an ustad do. You know, oh. if you are an aspiring poet, um, you usually have a mentor. So, like you know, we're all kind of part of our own silsilas, our own lineages of of advisors, and we are their mentor mentees. And so, um, you know, it's pretty common in in the poetic world of, of India that you would have some kind of mentor that would provide isla, provide corrections. And she talks about how her husband would help her and provide her corrections. You know, oh, that word's probably not the best. It's not sitting perfectly in the meter. So maybe you change it out for another one. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. I wonder if, do you think of Hamsa's... As, are you part of Hamza's Silsila now? <laughs> he has his own family. <laughs> you're about to say yes. But um, while you were talking about all of this, I was wondering how do you see any differences from the Lucknow culture? Or is there something very interesting in the Dakini courtesan poetry, which is very specific to Hyderabad and these areas and not in Lucknow? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Is she in Hyderabad? Yeah. The first yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the two courtesans whose poetry I'm working with are situated in Hyderabad. I wouldn't say that there's anything very specifically South Indian or Hyderabadi in like their, um, in the use of their terms or imagery, metaphors, anything like that. It's following a pretty conventional pattern um but isn't that very staple to do in poetry of this part of the world to stay within the conventions and to innovate within the conventions in a certain way exactly yeah and what i'm trying to figure out while reading through this this very large divan is is if she's actually quite interesting or if she's just like i don't know really boring or if she's, she's, writing, <laughs> she's writing with this Shia Luka. That is interesting. It is interesting, but it's just one component. And it could be that, you know, some of her poetry is just not good or not really, I don't know, sexy or fun. You're turning into <laughs> you're turning into a scholar now. No. This well, is a very this is a very crucial thing to do for people being like, this is not good poetry. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when important. people have that thing in them that they're reading, even for Ghalib, like I would see my professor being like, Brandon, we are talking about Ghalib, but this. It's not the best shape. This is not what Ghalib actually did, except for this is trash, and we are bringing it here to just be but like, do you they know, attribute it to like a pseudo? What? But like, is it still attributed to the same author? Like, even though the author is like amazing and good, or you'd be like, oh, maybe somebody else wrote this. I no. feel I think some it's people still... just have that reputation that you know there are just way larger than life kind of people 
like like Gallib for is... me for a long time Gazel equal to Gallib and when I okay. realized oh no it's not Gallib's own personal thing but Gazel is his genre and other people are also writing that hmm. that was kind of like oh okay of course <laughs> no I th- that was a phase when I started like Gazel equal to love poetry equal to Gallib hmm. do you have a favorite one also I'm waiting for you to um, <gasps> no, deliver but uh, now you said well, you uh, a favorite one. I do have a favorite chair. Okay, it was a very hard one, but I do have <laughs> a favorite chair. Galib does feature in, but it's not by Galib. It's by Lenny. That uh, my God, how can I blank out? Tumere pas hote ho goya jab koi dusra nahi hota. Okay, that's one. Yes. Do you want to translate it for, uh, for me? <laughs> I, I kind of actually liked it, but then I learned that Galib once said that he wants to create his whole divan, his whole anthology, Without in exchange of this couplet. I was like, wow. Okay, but what does it mean? Okay, uh, the very thing that everyone says, Goya is like an untranslatable word, which translates to... Even when, if so. Even when, if so, as if. Yes, even when, if so, as if. So... <laughs> Okay. You are with me even when there are others. You are with me when no one else is. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like that. It has a, a bunch of like complex meanings. You can read it in different ways. I mean, Goya is kind of contextual that you can put it in different meanings. So mm. it's kind of like the lover is saying to beloved that you are with me all the time, even when others are there. You are with me. You are with me when no one else is. Mm. You are with me even when you are not there. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. But is there still like a distinct sense between like the sense of self for the lover and the beloved? Definitely. Or does that blur? No. At a point. Oh no, the sense between the lover and the beloved never blurs in okay. this kind There's of poetry. No, like, the beloved is we all have the same The beloved is always out of your league. The beloved is like better than the moon. But she's <laughs> never going to look at you. You are trash, you are terrible, but you still like But this is all you know no other way of living other than looking at the beloved, like the crazy. Well, but this is in one context. So yeah. one important trope to understand about the Ghazal, the lyric poem, in Arabic, Persian, and Urdu, is that you can read it in two ways, ishki majazi and ishki haqiqi. So if you read it this way, then it's ishki majazi, which means a worldly beloved. It's like, you know, man falls in love with woman. Woman, exactly. She's completely unattainable. She's aloof to all of his advances, la-di-da-di-da. And the poetry is always one-sided. The beloved uh, sorry, the lover is always pining for the beloved. But you can also read all ghazals in the, the religious sense, the spiritual sense, the Sufi sense, which is ishke haqiqi. Haq comes from truth, uh, truth as in like capital T, the divine. And um, that is when the beloved is actually God. And so you are a lover who's constantly pining for God. It's that the beloved and God can be interchangeably used. And the great thing about this is that the purpose of the ghazal is to play on that um, 
that metaphor. But sometimes there's these metaphors that make more sense in a worldly context because there's a lot of personification. You're talking about tresses. You're talking about big, I don't know, uh, like deer-like, heron-like eyes. And then in other contexts, there are examples where you're talking about, especially for Ghalim, it's interesting that you think about him as like the poet of love because a lot of people think about Mir as the poet of love and Ghalib as the poet of introspection and philosophy. Uh, besides Iqbal, he's really doing masterful things with putting tropes on top of tropes uh, in order to create very complex and dense ideas about, you know, normal things like like love. <laughs> normal. I mean, he kind of a lot of poetry. What I read was he's writing about love, but when you start reading, there's everything else. But everything that. else, but mm-hmm. love. Yeah. Yeah. That think, was my Persian 101 when I started reading Khalid, when the only word I would understand is hair in the end, which translates to is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, all I, I know, know all I know in the poetry is is and no other thing. Yeah. yeah. Cool. But yeah, I suppose, so the, I suppose, yeah, but what you said is really interesting. That's, uh, you know, you have these gradations because poetry classes, at least back from, oh, I had my undergrad in Delhi. Delhi's like the hot seat. You know, people are citing shares all the time. Oh. Look at them, you feel terrible. And you're, you walk into your literature class, there are people who know, like there are people who would cite five shares in like a 10 minutes conversation. And I will always be like, okay. But there are gradations. And, and, and no feel that becomes like pretentious? It's pre- like it sounds a little bit. It's pretentious. It's in the way of behaving of people. It's like, or like you're natural. showing off. Like I don't know. I don't have never. If I have ever heard somebody insert a share in conversation, I certainly did not know it was happening. I was like, I was just. <laughs> I was just happy with two things back in those days when I transitioned from Galib being a love poet to Galib's poetry is very philosophical. When I could say that, I was like, wow, I'm great. So and he's like talking about. Love but not love. But like being like philosophy not in the ethical moral sense and the like metaphysical ontology. So? Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's a lot of that. Um cool. I think Ghalib is really nuanced and if anybody is is interested <laughs> in like a kind of moderate introduction to Ghalib, I highly recommend Frances Pritchett's website. So she she's part of my Silsa. Oh God, <laughs> which is why I was like, oh, she's bringing that up. Yeah. So Fran Pritchett is Pasha's supervisor. Uh, and, and therefore she's she like my grant, she calls me her grant supervisor. So she is kind of, um, at least in, in the West, the preeminent person who's worked on Khalid. Hmm. And um, she has a wonderful website because she was tech savvy from like back in the 1980s. And it was Garden of Roses or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, Aww. Desert Full of Roses. Yeah, yeah, Desert Full of Roses. Okay. So there's a there's a website with his entire anthology of poetry, and every single couplet is translated. It's Ooh. translated. It's with commentaries translated into English. With multiple commentaries, and uh, you can actually read it in multiple scripts. So you can read it in Hindi, so cool. in Urdu, in uh, transliterated Roman. Um, it's a really great one. It's a great website and it's very accessible for like non non general yeah. like for general knowledge. That's very cool. I think I think everybody needs more poetry in their lives. And if you've if you encounter anybody in I don't know, 
in the world of Urdu poetry, or if you meet anybody who, who works on Urdu or anything, the first thing you'll probably say, or they'll say, is Ghalib, because he is such a canonical poet. Um, <laughs> and so this would be a really nice introduction to, to him. Very cool. Sorry, I'm just checking his time. No. But Swati, go ahead. I'm ready for your... So wait, no. Wait, no. no. Uh, what? Okay. Uh, can I read? I feel like I'm being put on the spot. You are being put on the spot. <coughs> you can still read. That's up to you. Okay. Uh, I really hope no one my fault is that. Uh, so Bhavani Uvacha. Tavitram Kirijagavre, Bala Naga Bhushanam, Shrino Harona Nashtartha, Sastu Vishveshvara Priye. Okay, uh, it's kind of very. That was very long. I, mean, I think of like a verse like this. In my defense, I've done better. Right. That was lovely. I mean, we don't know any better, so you're fine. Uh, it kind of translates to the daughter of the, uh, okay, so Bhavani is like another name for Parvati, and it's like about Shiva and Parvati, and the background story is kind of like Parvati somehow falls in love with Shiva a lot, a lot, and she goes on this long penances, and she's like, oh, Lord Brahma, and oh, all the lords in the world, uh, I want this person as my husband. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, granted, granted. But Shiva kind of is like, how should I put it? He's what? Katie, help me. How is it? Shiva is kind of this, okay. He's I'm not being very, No, I'm being very pop culture vocabulary now. He's kind of this loner, aloof guy who's smeared with ashes. Who I'm has sure like a favorite. So I was like, yeah. And <laughs> who wears just a tiger skin, who has no family, who's like though. a weird guy. Yeah. And uh, she falls in love with him, and she's the daughter of the mountain king. And there takes a long time for her parents to agree that, yeah, we can send this princess of the world to this person who lives out on a snow peak wearing a tiger skin. And yeah, very, very weird, weird. Yeah, so it kind of translates. They would be very good parents if they were just like, yeah, go ruin your life. Yeah, so the first two lines kind of translate as the daughter of the mountain married a destitute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's white because he has smeared himself with ashes and his ornament is a serpent because he has a snake around his neck. And then someone tells her, Listen, he's not the one whose wealth has disappeared. Uh, because when he came to impress her parents, he came as this good eligible bachelor. But now he's living like this, like recluse. So he's not the one whose wealth has disappeared. Oh dear, he's the lord of the universe. Aww. Aww. That's so sweet. So how did, how did Shiva actually come around to Parvati? The idea of Parvati. She's just oh, like, how oh. I came around to this idea? No, no. How did he come around to her? Like, what made him be like, okay, cool. I, she loves me a lot. This is worthwhile. 
know, it was like long and long and long. This woman is like standing on one leg, eating nothing but a leaf, and is fasting and doing all kind of crazy penances. And then all the bards are like, let's make this love story come true kind of thing. And then the show was all right. He saw how they were true. Oh, no. There was Eventually. A, a, then they wrote in the Lord of Love, who came with his wife, and they tried to do a thing, and tried to be like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, uh, you know, let's get some things going in the heart of Shiva. And Shiva is in his deep meditation state. He opens his eyes, and he's like, burns the Lord of Love to ashes. And oh, no. then like, dead. Yeah, and then he's because the Lord of Love has died, the world does not have any good thing because there's no <laughs> spring, there's nothing. And then he revived him and they were like, listen, do the world a favor, marry this woman. And then he agreed. Yeah. Well, she's also, isn't she also the, incarnation, the reincarnation of his wife from before? Yeah. Who was oh, his yeah. wife before? Actually, I mean, Sanchi? same person, Sanchi, but a different. The, the thing that's also outlawed. Okay. I mean, same person, but she a different bird. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but like, so she she uh, kills herself with her own yogic power. She says she'll her fire, and that's kind of like the one of the mythological roots for like uh, widow burning that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, so her name is associated with that. But she's also like one of the wives of the show. And she's pretty cool. The, like the whole not one of the the only wife of Shiva. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the different names kind of different people. I don't know. I think like once you have like reincarnation, you're like sorta of, kind of a little bit different, at least in some important ways. Does Bhagavati see herself as Sati? As like the previous? Not I oh god. This is on record. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I would say I don't work with that tradition. I mean, but there I, is an underlying consensus that this is the same. I don't, she doesn't like talk about it. Her, but yeah. she kind of She's is not like, oh, who's yeah. not aware of the background story. Yeah, she doesn't talk about like, oh, yeah, when I was this other person. She doesn't, as far as I know. I do also don't particularly no, study this. If she like, remembers what happened in the sure. past and they were married before, it would make it would decomplexify the story. But the whole point is, oh, she braved all odds to marry. Because she liked him. And yeah, Shiva, despite being people know. <laughs> yeah, no, I noticed. And so Shiva, mm-hmm. despite being a god, didn't recognize. I don't know. Until he was like coerced. I don't know. He was in his deep meditation state. Yeah. He's also so devastated because his wife committed suicide. Yeah. He went on a whole ragey tear after she died. And flipped a lot of tables. That was a really, really nice... uh, Is that a shloka? Yes. Do you ever simply recite a shloka or is it almost always... Sang. Uh, technically, they're supposed to be singing sung, and at least in my Sanskrit class, I usually sing. Because does everybody in your Sanskrit class sing, or do people not sing? Does Hamsa sing? That's the most important. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Things it's are like that for him. Like thing. Hamsa's like, thing. yeah, that's what the meter is. This is what Hamsa sings. Wow. Yeah, and I'm there like, I stand on there. I would want to be able to do this. 
Because what I'm doing is my secret tab, 17 syllables. Which meter is that? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Tasha likes to sing too. He, he often sings in the Urdu poetry class. Also, the thing that I we forgot to say, much. all poetry is meant to be sung. It's meant to be heard, it's meant to be sung, not read, technically. Who says that? For what? This is in Sanskrit. Sanskrit says it. <laughs> for Sanskrit poetry? I think she's making this claim for all poetry oh, everywhere in the universe. That's what I learned. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. It's about the sound. It's not about, like, the... I don't know, but it depends. Yeah. In Urdu, Context matters. Yeah, in Urdu, there's like these three different ways that you can kind of recite. You can just read it, say it. Um, you can say it in Tarannum, which is kind of like with like a beat, and then you can sing it. Um, but you can also sing it around the ragas, right? The ragas? For I don't know what that means. I landed myself in soup because I knew only till that. Well, that's okay. Yeah. I don't know. What? Those are the three main ways that. But I don't know when uh, when it's sung, you know, it doesn't actually have to be to a raga or something like, um, I'm trying to think of an example, well, like, something like Ajjani Pizidna Karo is not in, you know. Like, yes, it's um, not in raga, but people sing. People sing. See, you cite poetry. I'm sorry. Huh? Yeah, I'm she just went. Ajjani Pizidna Karo. Oh. Which literally, sorry, how would you translate that? Mm. How would you translate zid? Zid is probably my favorite word, Olivier. Zippy. <laughs> I use it to describe Olivier all the time. He's zippy. He's obstinate and stubborn. Do not, yes, do not be stubborn to leave. It's okay. like you're trying to make your beloved stay. It's it's really, actually, I, I see it in like this beautiful kind of almost courtesan-like context because that's the way that my, <laughs> my, my brain works. But I imagine, you know, a courtesan who's sitting like on this kind of really nice like tufted takht or something a platform and her patron who she like loves is like okay girl i gotta go i gotta go back to my house i gotta go back to my wife and my kids and like my estate and life and things and then she just like calls out to him and she's like Aj like don't today just just today don't be so obstinate. Don't go. Just stay a little Ooh. while longer. <laughs> so yeah, and it sounds so sweet. So that's how I think of it. So, are you one of those people who listen to new Coke Studio version or new cover or new wow. song in town and be like, wow. "What the hell did you do with this?" No, I really like Coke Studio. No, Coke that, studio. no not the Coke Studio. Of course, Coke. I listen to that all the time. Look, uh, but what like other Coke people, studio? I'll get to that. <laughs> Uh, I like I like modern renditions. I think really? when they're done, they're done well. And I think fusion is some somewhat growing on me now. So like mm. I like the incorporation of you know electric guitar here and there, mm. like pashto uh, poetry. That's cool to me. I think Coke it works. Studio, Coke Studio yeah. is this amazing platform where they have music. Yes. <laughs> okay, let me sell Coke Studio off to you. Uh, it's like based in Pakistan. They have good But it's not just based in Pakistan. They have Coke Studio. I mean, like, the one that we are talking about. Right. It's like. There's more than one. There's Coke Studio, Studio in India. They have Coke Studio India. They have Coke Studio. Um, where, there's like just Coke Studio General Arab. Which is yes. Like, in different languages. In different languages. Oh. In... But the Pakistani one is, I think, the one that they perfected. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is why, which is why I was like, uh, Coke Studio is based in Pakistan, and you go like, it's everywhere as well. And I was like, oh yes, technically it's everywhere as well. But the Pakistan one, on sorry, okay, it's perfect. It. It's so good because they have like a range of languages. So you would have Punjabi, you would have Urdu, you would have Pashto. There's such beautiful Pashto. And Burushaski was the one I was listening to just two days ago. And there's Sindhi as well. Hmm. There's a bit of Rajasthani. That's where you find the coolest singer in town. And all of it is transliterated for you to read. And also translated in beautiful English. Like, that's Hmm. one of the first times I was like, not a bad translation. Hmm. Did you know that the person (laughs) who is the Coke Studio translator for something like eight years? I know she's uh, she's not here. here. Yeah, Zara. Yeah, I know. I I saw her name. And I was like, wow, that's it. Who is Zara? Zara was a PhD student in our in our institute. Oh, she's wow. back in Pakistan now, but um, but she was a, the translator for Coke Studio for a long time, for many years. I was so hooked on to their offering, offering, which was so good. It's a nice rendition. But the original one is good. Too. And so, what they do with Coke Studio, especially in the Pakistani context, is they're bringing back a lot of um, folk songs and very well and like classical poetry, um, songs from, you know, like the 60s or maybe from like the 30s, mm. and they're giving it a modern twist in order for it to like lend to modern audiences. And sometimes they do it with, you know, really cool new instruments. Sometimes they'll take something like the Qawwali genre, which, you know, has immense like kind of um, metaphysical and religious connotations, but then also making it like a little bit rock and roll. So they do like really interesting things. And a lot of people do not like what they're doing to some of like the classical music, the classical poetry, the classical genres, whatever. But for somebody like me, I'm a diaspora kid, you know, like I grew up in America. I would say it's a a good introduction. It's a great introduction because some of these songs, some of these folk songs that they're bringing back um, I've never heard of in my entire life. My parents probably haven't heard of since they were like really young or maybe like they were getting married. And it's kind of cool that they're kind of making a comeback and we can sing That's along with them. making yeah. it accessible cool. to you, which is beautiful. Well, that was very cool. Yeah, how hard is it? This is a slightly different topic, but how difficult do you think it is to learn to read Arabic scripts? Not difficult at all. Really? Because it it'll looks really you, difficult. It'll take you two weeks. Two weeks? Just sit in on my, my Hindi Urdu class. I'll teach you it in two weeks. That's it. Oh, I'm taking that <laughs> next year? It really is. It's Katie true. knows. Katie's next year. Yeah, but I'm really interested. It looks, because there's so many more different combinations. It looks like the, the positional versions of the same like letter. And I just like my little brain is going. <laughs> I will say it's not phonetic like. Uh, like the Devanagari script is for him. Which is the thing that's funny, like it's to me, Devanagari is very straightforward. I do. And it's like, oh, I get it. Like Greek was awful. I hated learning that. Like the the script did not click in my head. But Devanagari actually makes sense to me. It which does. Which is very odd. But Arabic script seems like. Actually, it'll probably mm-hmm. be easier for you now because you have some basic grammar as well. That's true. So, so that you'll be able to kind of create those. Parts of- Exactly. All the short vowels you have to infer, mm-hmm. um, but it's not that bad. Once you start thinking in that way, it, it becomes second nature. Um, and the great thing is that if you learn the Urdu script first, then you can go <laughs> backwards and you already know the Persian script and you know the Arabic script. 
because the way that it works is Arabic has the fewest letters and then Persian adds in about six new letters mm. things like p and j which don't exist in Arabic really there's exactly. no p yeah that's why they say bebsi in the Arabic mm. wow yeah you want some bebsi yeah so <laughs> that's so, so then in Persian you add in about like six letters and then in Urdu, we add in all of these retrofrex letters and these other things that come from, you know, Indian languages. Yeah. So it has Sanskrit the most... based languages. Exactly. And so it has the most kind of comprehensive Arabic script. Mm. And so if you know Urdu, then I you can, can just go backwards. Yeah. That's my goal. So my fiancé, his mother's first language is Arabic. Fiancé is out of the room. Yeah, he's not here. But his mother's first language is Arabic, and my threat is that uh, one day I want to learn Arabic. Like, and like, it's his grandma's first language. It's his uncle's first language. Like, it's we're like, not going to get closer to that if you're like, one day I want to learn Arabic. No, I will never. One day. No, 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 no. I have too many other things to do right now. Yeah, no, I need to, I need to keep working on my Hindi and I need to, you know, consolidate my French. But how long have you been learning Hindi? Well, actually, the first run I took at it was in your class. Really? Yeah, I audited during my, I was doing my NA at Concordia, and I sat in for like a few months a with few Austin. Months? Austin, the, like, he does Buddhism, he does like spirit possession in Nepal. He's very cool. He took, he was in the class, he was an undergrad, he was finishing. Anyway, and I was in my MA at Concordia, and you were teaching the class, and I audited for like a little bit, and then I stopped going because things got hectic. Way, but I don't remember anybody named Austin either. Maybe this is Aksa's class? No, no, no. This was your class, and it was in the um the bullshit Joshua. little classroom. Yeah, but like in the back. Yeah. You know, when there was like you go through like the tunnel and like through the portal into the other universe, and then you're right. Oh, in Ferrier? No, no, here. Oh, okay. The weird one, like past the model lectures, like thing, like the yeah. weird hallway. Um. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird room. I have no clue about anything you're saying. Exactly. It's a very odd room that nobody knows exists like, until you have a plaster and then you need to find it. Um, but yeah, no, it was in that cluster. I don't know if you remember what was in the class. But Austin, I remember because we we're actually friends. Um, but yeah, I sat in for a little bit. That was the first run I took at learning Andy. And then that fell apart quickly. <laughs> okay. uh, I came back and I started the PhD and then. Because I started in like September, September 2020. So it was like disaster zone, uh, apocalypse stuff. So nobody was kind of watching or caring about anything about us. Like nobody like oh, like in, in terms of our development and our like hitting milestones, like actually being on top of like uh, doing the things. So one day we may graduate. Um, nobody cared. So I didn't actually start working towards, because we have, we have to have two languages, working towards uh, my language things until last year. Mm-hmm. And then it happened to be Tashiji teaching the class. Um, which is really nice, because so we were all like the mushks and stuff, and it was like, oh, it had yeah, like, his Tashi. name and stuff in it. But, but yeah, he's really- We, we trade off, and he teaches, um, we like to stay with our students for at least two years. Mm-hmm. So like he'll teach intro and then next year he's going to teach intermediate so that he can be with that cohort. And this year I'm teaching intro, so next year I'll probably teach intermediate. So then I'm with like a group of students for two years. Yeah, that's nice. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. That's nice. But it feels like language, I have such respect for language teachers. Like it's such a skill. It's my it's favorite really thing to hard. do. But it's so like, it takes so much energy and it takes so much like force. Like, 
to like animate and like really like I don't know when you're teaching other things right it's like you say it like a few different ways but it's not like the same thing of like going over the same things over and over and over and over again for like fucking weeks like it's like the patience and commitment that that takes is like so impressive but there's so much gratification like when when you see when you when you see a student and they're like they're progressing and at the beginning of the year they can hardly say that you know my name is X and then now they're you know giving like sentences yeah like they're on like monologue and so that's really gratifying to watch somebody's progress and that's partially why I like to stay with students for two years because I'm like wow like I taught you how to say my name is and now you're like debating about the weather climate change (laughs) so it's really cool it is really cool and I think there's something also kind of sweet about teaching I don't know something that's when when it comes to language it's something that you can really take outside of academia, outside of the classroom. Oh, totally. And so while, you know, I've taught content courses in the past, and I really enjoy those too, because it gets, at least for helping undergrads think critically about the world and, mm-hmm. and, and like the texts that they engage with and like the things that they're, they're being taught. I think a lot of it is, is less, I don't know, practical outside of the classroom. I mean, Maybe not in the case of everything. If we're in religious studies or Islamic studies. There's so much that is applicable outside of the classroom. But, you know, when are they actually going to debate about secularism except with, like, their uncle on Thanksgiving awkwardly or something? <laughs> but if you teach something like language, there's just so much, like, beauty and idea. So. Yeah, that, yeah, like, they'll be like, hey, you know, Sabina G, I went to India, like, three years after our class. And it was me and my family, and I was the only person who could, who could speak Hindi Urdu and wow. I just helped us get by and that's just like so cool. It's very cool. Yeah. It's a very real skill. I like that. It is. I think it's 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 important to find like those things in grad school or the academy that like actually are gratifying. Yeah. <laughs> everything else is so like like insubstantial. Like it I don't know, it feels it's hard to And the opposite of gratifying. Yeah, it just feels like nothing's happening. Like I'm just spinning my wheels. Like it's just I haven't had a move. I haven't progressed. I haven't done anything. Swati, what's been your favorite part of the PhD so far? No. <laughs> no, I was like, who that first? I don't know. I kind of like everything. You're so positive. No, I I would I would say I'm so positive. No. Okay, I've been told this multiple times on my face. You're too cheerful. Yeah, you're too cheerful about your PhD. We really want to see you how you are for your damn combined. Like, I really want to see myself how it is. No, it. I don't know. Okay, I'm start, going to sound like very hopelessly romantic about my PhD, but I feel every day feels so much like a gift because I'm able to do what I really want to do, and no, I also true. switched pull up my proposal and everything. I have great friends, great advisor. Everything feels good. The only thing terrible... Like we need the true believers to be amongst us. And I really, like I mean, remind us that no, we actually I, care about what we're doing. I really like every part of it. The only thing that freaks me out is every day that I walk out of my house and come here, sit at my desk, I see 20 new more things that I don't know anything about and I feel <laughs> way more ridiculous than that. Oh my God. You're... 10% more terrible than you thought yesterday. No, I don't think it's terrible. I think there's a species of humility that comes with knowing about 
what you don't know. Like, or being aware of the contours of the things you don't know. And I think that's an important well, Humility is not a virtue that we talk about a lot in the academy. It's kind of the opposite. We're taught to be like arrogant dicks. But like, it's, I feel like it's a good thing to, it's not a bad, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. That's all I mean. To borrow a little bit of your optimism. Yeah. Totally. I think one of the things that I appreciate about getting to my desk and then opening my email and seeing all the things that I don't know is that there's so many opportunities to like learn about things that I don't know and I would have never thought to think about or want to learn about. But then suddenly I'm like, actually, do I want to learn about Islamic occultism? Yes, for Ooh. sure I do. That's great. That's and so, yeah, this is going to be my pivot. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I feel like there's just something so exciting because, you know, I never even considered that, especially when, when you're siloed pretty early or maybe um, you get like kind of categorized in like a particular discipline early enough. You're like, man, I don't think I'm ever going to like pivot out of this. And I talked to one of my friends who's a professor here in computer science and he was telling me, you know, yeah, that happens because you're doing something for so long. Like for mm -hmm. me, I started off doing literary studies and then I never thought I could do anything else. I, could, I was just going to do Urdu forever. <laughs> As an undergrad, I'm doing, you know, Urdu poetry and then I go on to my master's and I'm doing Urdu poetry and then I go on to my PhD and I'm doing Urdu poetry. And I'm like, okay, but maybe there are other things that I would have wished that I would have tried. Maybe my master's to do some like anthropology, ethnographies with like working communities or something. Um, but I think it's kind of exciting to have other people who are professors who are like, you know, actually I did my pivot in my postdoc. In the first year after my That's PhD, that has to be like I started moving in this direction <laughs> and now I'm in something completely different. Mm -hmm. So I think being a first year PhD student coming from Are you a, a first very... year? No. Second yeah. year? Yeah, you're a first year. Really? Yeah. I started last fall. So I have a very poor sense of time. Nice. Coming from an advanced that's how when people don't want to say what year they're in, they just say advanced <laughs> PhD. Advanced. From advanced, candidate. A PhD candidate. From, yeah. from a PhD candidate to a first year student. I think this is an exciting stage for you because even for me, I have like this, I don't know, this hope that I'll be able to pivot to Islamic occultism. I just have to manifest it into Islamic <laughs> occultism. Um, you know, Are you trying to do that thing that I keep saying? Is that thing that would translate but like, wait, like occultism? Uh, yeah. Like, what are the historical parameters of this, that term and the way, are you, the way you are interested in it, at least? The way that I'm interested in yeah. it? Yeah. Oh. Like what time know. and space? Which, which time? Definitely the pre-modern. I like the, I like pre-modern literature and texts and history and things like that. I just think it's really exciting. Well, it's more beautiful. Yeah, it's kind and of And it's like, yeah, that's ugly and sad. I think it's also what? just, no. I think <laughs> it's just <laughs> really complex. But the identity is like a little bold. <laughs> I do, like, deeply, like, I do secularism and, like, all this bullshit, like, religious nationalism, like, that's my thing. You and, spoke yeah, no, it's a little, like, it's so cool to work You know, but religious, modernity has this way of flattening things and turning it into, like, a one-note narrative, which, like, pre-modern things is the total opposite. It's beautiful. I don't know. I used to do non, my, my shift happened, like, later on in my undergrad, but, like, I never did modern things. Modern things were boring, and, like, anyway. Don't look at me. I just when you just switched to what Kashmiri, yeah, but I, 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 I
some, some. If I can put that off a few months later, I would say yes. I think it should be philosophy, right? No, but isn't that like it. at least early modern? Yeah, early modern. But yeah. I would say working with modern or uh, it's also cool. It's cool in a different way. Oh, I think I should shut up because I'm pulling no. the card that I hopelessly like everything about academia and people do, and it's like that's a good thing, you know. Like liking what we do. I think that's, that's not a thing you should like yeah. smush or like extinguish. It's a thing you should like. I'm going to sound very Hansel-like right now, but... He's like the most adorable, like enthusiastic human being you've ever met. Like, come on! Yes, but it's, a uh, it's very Hansel to say that, you know, it's really about how you're doing it. That's fair. Hmm. But like, okay, but the way you relate to modernity or not to modernity, like that, that still... I feel uh, you cannot escape modernity and the questions of that, even when you're dealing with pre-modern stuff, because you're so rooted in your subjectivity today, yes. and you're looking backward, and totally. you learn about the stereotypes before, and then a lot of your time is unlearning those stereotypes and fixing yourself, in addition to focusing on your text. So what stereotypes do you see in... Kashmiri philosophical. Oh, blah, 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 blah. What's the tell? Uh, yeah, I know. In your work. Yeah. Uh, do you do philosophy? I don't even remember. You told me. I'm sorry. I forgot. I can't defend myself on that, so I would say no. There's no philosophy? No, I, uh, no you asked, do you do philosophy? I was like, no. Uh, okay, stereotypes about Kashmir. Uh, it being Islamic or Hindu, a lot mm -hmm. of violence, religious identities. Uh, the Orientals, militarized the world. What? Kashmir. Uh, oh yes, of course. It beats Israel by a year. Yes. Fun facts. I mean, there are particular reasons for that. There is totally. Yeah. I'm gonna. Yeah. Uh, construction of identities. Also, Kashmir is a very interesting place or region to focus on. Whatever historical period you're focusing on. Uh, if I look at the period that I'm focusing, it would be really interesting because people have their own mother tongues, so they would have Kashmiri, a few people uh, would have Sindhi or maybe Punjabi, Dogri, whichever region or ethnicity or uh, collective they're coming from, and then there would be Persian, which is the courtly language, and there came in kings later who switched an entire established tradition of Persian to Urdu, which no one spoke, which was hilarious and ridiculous. There's also Sanskrit. There are variations in Sanskrit because Kashmir has its own script. Also, because Kashmiri is not an, uh, like, it's root and linguistically, it's not similar to Sanskrit, so a lot of Sanskrit would be inflected with the sounds of Kashmiri. So in manuscripts or things, people working with mainland India or northern central plains may find it difficult to move around those manuscripts because that Sanskrit is inflected by local Kashmiri. Uh, so how many languages do you Probably only Sanskrit and a bit of Sharada. That would work. Okay. Yeah, but what also got me really interested was that there are a few pundits who have their manuals written in the Urdu script. That's Sanskrit written in Urdu, which would be really cool because it would be hard to trace the uh, vowels and 
Sanskrit is a very syllabic language, so you would need mm. vowels. And I don't know how it would be because if you had the text in front, you still struggle with Sanskrit. That's right. But this isn't these texts written in early script aren't what you wanna. No, that's uh, oh the text that I would be focusing on is in Sanskrit that would be in the Sharpest group, okay. but it's like okay composed in Kashmir, but it's heavily practiced in Kerala as well, and it's kind of like Kerala, huh? yes, and it does have manuscripts in different collections over India currently, and does have commentaries oh. from different regions. So it also has a page. How did it get to Kerala? But your thing is, is your manuscript from Kerala? Oh, that's a Kashmiri composition. Okay, so then how does it get to Kerala? So you always have no that would be interesting. Particular connection to I don't know how it formed there. Probably the Sri Vaishnava tradition. I don't know. Could be that. Interesting. I don't know. I it's think also like a lot that uh, this collection of hymns is attributed to an unknown Kashmiri poet. It's also attributed to Kalidas. It's also attributed to Shankara, which is pretty wide. I think, yeah, I'm finding the inter-regional connections more and more interesting. And like, what do people attribute those connections to and how do they trace it and like, what do they point to as like, oh yeah, more this is what connects us. I think those connections are really hard to see. Thing right about now. Kashmir also is, it challenges a lot of presumptions and a lot of conclusions that I had for myself, like, okay, I've been reading Hinduism, I know something, but when I had a class on Kashmir, and I was like, what? That's mm, interesting. That's and very crazily enough, at that point, I thought it would be so cool to explore this and learn new things. And <laughs> I was like, yes, Hamza, I think I do have time. I would like to learn everything from scratch. Don't worry about it. I can do that. And we had like long brainstorming discussions and things kind of worked out that way. It's interesting also because of the religious landscape they have. So you have the Buddhists oh. and Shaiva and the Buddhists have like crazy antagony between each mm -hmm. other. And there's also the influx of Islam. There are different Sufi But then what is this in here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so well, that's the like Buddhists, for like the time wait, period. The Buddhists really disappear. The, but the Buddhists disappear, but the Buddhist idea do not. And there's hmm. a lot of uh, appropriation of that. And then there's also an emergence of Islam, different Sufi orders and the Rishi order, which is pretty interesting. How hard of a line do you draw between the different tra traditions? Between different traditions? Yeah, like the different traditions, the different like... Traditions Like if, if, the, if the ideas stick around and persist and are used in the other traditions, like... How how different is it in your perspective, or maybe in your text? Or I don't know. How much have you started working on the text? Sorry, that was a bunch of questions. Yeah, which one do I start with? Um, which how do I draw a distinction between different traditions? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I work. I majorly work with texts and manuscripts, so. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, like, it's way more easier to draw distinct boundaries than, say, doing art history because they would have shared workshops. The same artists would be making uh, 
are poets who go to the traditions, mm -hmm. they would have a lot of overlap. The visual vocabulary is kind of co common for a lot of things, and it's also based on centers. So mm -hmm. a lot of, it's funny how a lot of Sanskrit manuscripts are based in Nepal. You would find that in mm -hmm. Nepal archives. And everyone has a pretty standard justification that, you know, India is so humid, India does, does not have a climate that <laughs> manuscripts would survive. It survived in Nepal. Nepal India also, has one climate. <laughs> uh, yes, we could debate that. But Nepal was also this peaceful land where there were no wars, there was no invasion, and different explanations. But where I draw distinction? That's an interesting question. Yeah, it feels like what well, I, I can make myself feel terrible for two weeks on that now. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't uh, think questions should. What be debates asked. are people talking about? What's a new idea that the text is talking about? How are they appropriating the previous ideas? And I mean, yes, it's hard to talk about what category is whose because we were reading the Bhagavad Gita. Katie would know. No, but it's also about what the discourse of the text is. What is the text telling you to do? How the text has been received kind of makes your work a lot easier. So who's writing the commentary on that? How is the text being circulated? But isn't the reception different from the text? Oh, this is a very cool question to ask. I love this. This is a very uh, no. This is a very uh, cool question to ask today because. Uh, one of the things that I'm working for Hamza's uh, Mahabharata class is that I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita, which is focused on Krishna. But I've, what I'm working on is a Shaivite commentary. So this oh. is the exploration that Shiva is the ultimate god. But oh. here is Krishna saying, I'm the Lord. So it's kind of completely inflected on how the commentator, the great Abhinava Gupta is like, listen, let me tell you the truth. And just of oh, everything there is. Is it a particular wait? I mean, this is a particular commentary yeah. that you're working with. Where does it come from? Tell us more. Kashmir. Oh. Uh, early eleventh, <laughs> early eleventh century Kashmir. Um, Very cool. Yeah, but his justification is he just changes that. You know, the text is classified as our text, so basically, I'm authorized to write my own. Kind of interesting. Like our text in like a like it's a. It's a text of my tradition, mm. not what people would generally assume it to be. So I have the right tradition. to write about that. Hmm. And like really do it. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like maybe but like there's an awareness that in a lot of other cases it's not considered part of our tradition. That sounds like a line. I mean uh, the author is aware of like. It depends on how you're approaching it. So for a very lay person, the Bhagavad Gita would be like, oh, it's the Bible of the Hindu faith. Well, everything is a Bible of Hindu faith. Oh, <laughs> every, <laughs> text, no, every, text, every text is the Bible of Hindu faith. By now, yeah, but I, I, don't know. I feel like if, if Gandhi says it, it's not necessarily the most Why would you say person. Why would you say that? That is the most essential text of Hinduism. Oh, uh, uh, Gandhi is one of the very cool persons that I mean I say cool in the sense because the time with when I was realizing okay I'm interested in reading religion is when I would hear about Gandhi a lot. Hmm. I think he's an interesting figure. He was very interesting. 
Usually the oddest professor show ever class on. He's uh, a wild human being. Um, but he has like crazy Oh, he did his PhD on the text of MRT. Oh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He's still kind of professor having PhD in the world. Have you read it? Or is it on the list? I read it. You did? What's it like? Oh my god. What? Who writes in a very archaic way? Well, he's a professor of German. He, he's had tenure longer than I've been no, alive. The guitar is <laughs> some Like, no, of course it's archaic. He's professor No, I'm not criticizing. He just has a very different way of writing. The good thing about... He has a different uh, way of writing because the text that he refers to... Also, he, the book was published in like 83. That's like way, yeah. way long ago. The scholarships that he cites are different. He was writing at a different period, also. What does he say about it? What's the abstract? Sorry. If you don't remember, that's okay, too. He kind of... <laughs> okay, I, I could totally say this very confidently. He had his own fanboy moment with Avinav Gupta's commentary because he takes so many pains to be like, this commentator is so compassionate. This commentator is such a wonderful human being. I mean, like, let me chart it out for you. None of us get through the PhD without like passion being in there somewhere. Like, you gotta like feel something. I can't say that. I just started. Even like six, uh, seven years later. I don't know. The good thing like, about him is he just compares it with so much of things that mm -hmm. he. He's deeply compared to Yeah. Which I like. His was the first book that I read about Google's. Ah, which one? Okay, this is a very wild thing to say. That's so cool. This is a very wild when thing. When did you read this? And now you're in his department? That's so funny. That's kind of sweet. It's a very wild thing to say. There was a, because I was an English major and uh, back in Delhi, and I all my professors were these Freudian, Foucauldian, secular people. And I went up to my professor and I'm like, hey, I'm interested in reading religion. And she was like, I hope you know that we were secular people and I was oh, like th that's not what I was saying and I did a pretty weird thing I went back home and I was like Google pick those and that was the first resource so I started there that's yeah, how which I started one? He has like a zillion. the study of Hinduism oh. that's so cool since that moment did you want to come to McGill or was it just did like you know he was associated with McGill when you found the book yeah, I knew oh, okay. he was associated with McGill. Uh, I honestly started like a crazy person. I did not know that I would read a religion. I would get to study it. I did not know. I did not expect anything that happened after doing that crazy PhD research. <laughs> that's fair. I mean, I think that's a very organic and like honest version of how any of us get to yeah. what we do. For a long time, I would be very ashamed to say, not to say, I never said it, but I would be very ashamed to even have it in my mind that that's how I started or what? that's what? what I usually Isn't do. Isn't that how all of us started? It's yeah. not a race colony to do things on Wikipedia is what I've heard all the time. Wikipedia is very old now, have you gone? But, um, uh, you know, uh, there came a moment when I realized as long as I'm not committing an actual legit crime that can end me up in prison, I don't have to be ashamed about things. That's fair. That, that's a good realization to come to. Especially, I think there's like, in the university or universities, there's like a sense of like, oh, I must be like super nose in the air. I must 
have the most like pristine I have like, a back of mechanism against that I try to focus a lot more on what I can learn because I but that's such like an optimistic like lovely thing yeah it was a perspective I wasn't trying to move it towards optimism I just realized that there are so wonderful people around me and you just like happened to be optimistic so aggressively you know, that it just I think I think the environment has a lot to do with it too because I would say, I, I would say your advisor I'm fortunate totally. that my advisor also makes my me feel like my uh, belief is that I've been lucky I am surrounded and have been surrounded by good people and the only thing that I'm confident I can do is be better every day and learn from that you're so pithy I'm not pithy that's just what yeah, I try to do you can like take that quote and put it on the wall no please don't <laughs> I don't know. The more you protest, the more I want to do it. <laughs> how did you find? How did you find Pasha How did you find Hoka? How did you know? Find as in what? Well, I assume you met him at a certain point, or he became aware of his work. Our like, first, oh yeah, our, our first, first meeting. Our first like, meeting was so weird. It was so okay. It was so. Did you already knew who he was before? I. I would say no, based on how you I did. Okay. It was very intimidating to meet him for the first time. Because he's like a giant? I met him over Zoom. <laughs> oh, so you can't tell. <laughs> no, I reached out to him when I was thinking that I want to apply for PhDs. I wrote him an email. Like, how did you find him, though? Did you just Google him and Cross? I don't know. No. I would talk to my advisor and advisors and be like, hey, um, I'm considering applying for a PhD and things, and I kind of feel that was a good time because they would go through like, okay, what are you planning, what are the things, and they would be like, these are the people in the field, and I would look up universities and everything, Mm -hmm. and somehow I, uh, oh, there was a professor who was like, you should also look up for this person, and then I looked up, and I reached out to him over email, he replied back, we met over Zoom for the first time. And it was Hamza. Yeah, about Hamza. And he he's like, oh, you are at the Divinity School. I was like, I was sitting like this in the frame. I was so not confident at that time. And it went way more intimidating because of how the meeting went. And he's like, open book. Like he's very like, oh, it yeah. did not go that front after that because he's like, okay, let's get to the actual thing. How good are you with Sanskrit? And oh. I was like, <clears throat> you should have asked what languages I do before asking how good I am with Sanskrit. No, he went into long details like, what text are you working on? How good is your Sanskrit? What classes do you have? It was intense. Great like an interview. Yeah. Mine was very much not like an interview. Was oh, he's chill. He's very chill. He's kind of like a. He's chill until he's not there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I met him outside the class, so he's chill, kind of. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how did I meet him? I was also, um, finishing up my master's and the person who graded my master's thesis was his PhD supervisor oh. as a favor because there's nobody there to Francis. grade. Francis. 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 Oh, you had her in master's? No, I didn't. I didn't get to take class or anything. Oh, her. you said grade her. So she graded my thesis because at Columbia there was nobody, actually, where or everybody was. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I recently discovered this is the Columbia Sean. kind of club. Yeah. Um, so at Columbia, they didn't have anybody who, who would like grade an Urdu 
or do mm. kind of master's thesis because there just wasn't anybody supervising. Mm. Um, it was a very strange master's program. But anyway, um, so Francis Pritchett, um, Pasha's supervisor, decided to grade mine as a thesis, like as a, as a favor. And when I was talking with my undergraduate advisor, who I was obviously closer to since I didn't have like a, a supervisor at, at Columbia, um, he was talking about, you know, different places that I can apply. And Francis Pritchett was like, look, you should apply to McGill because that's where my student is and it's a great program and stuff. And so then I applied. That's so cool. And um, it worked out. Even though we don't, we don't really work on the same stuff. Like Pasha works on, um, yes, pre-modern Indo-Persian literature, but he does, you know, dastans and kissas and fantastical things. And I'm working on like women's literature. Uh, yeah. You know. And so... I'm glad that he he decided to take a bet on me. I mean, but he also loves I went to the workshop that she hosted, and he was so fun. He's he was cracking for odd comedy jokes. Come on, that's <laughs> weird. He's a fun guy. He, he also he he loves the students and he thinks they're amazing. I don't know. I like it's really it was lovely to see. A prof who like thinks his students are just like the smartest people in the universe. Yes, and like nobody can ever be as cool or as smart as their student. Um, and Ashley is very much like that. Oh, I don't know if he thinks that about me, but oh, he does. He <laughs> but totally does. But I know he. Does that not freak you out? Oh, it's terrifying and awful, but it's still real. It's and nice. Yeah. It's nice, especially in academia, because it is like you said, very competitive. Sometimes you have to like put on these yeah. airs just to fit in. Uh, it's nice to have somebody who's like a cheerleader. Yeah, like in your corner. And I and I will say that that's not that's not like the norm. Oh, totally. Like we're really lucky. If you can say that, and maybe some people are like putting their heads down, like no, that's not my supervisor. It's because that's the truth. Like the truth is that a lot of people have really kind of strange relationships with their advisors, where they're either like too pushy or kind of aloof or I don't know something weird in between. And so if you are fortunate enough to have a supervisor who's like, you know, you can do it, keep going, or I'm going to recommend you for this award, mm -hmm. it helps a lot. Totally. Yeah. Because it's such a place of like, I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know what I know. And so I like to have somebody be like, yeah, you're totally doing good things. You're doing amazing. I think it also, it also might help, and maybe for others students who have older supervisors it helps when you have a younger supervisor because they know mm -hmm. the shit that you're going through because they recently so far did. in the past <laughs> I think that's it helps immensely that helps a lot and also they understand the job market like i was talking to a couple mm. of other no actually i think it happened to me it happened to me i was at a conference i was at like a big national conference a couple of uh months ago and you know, I saw I saw a professor who I probably took coursework with when I was like an undergrad. Like I was pretty young. And I'm like, oh, you you do a PhD? That's so great and stuff. And then they're like, so what? Where are you off to after you you graduate? Like, which which universities are you applying to and stuff? And I'm like, do you even understand what it's like right now to like <laughs> yeah. be on the job market and like how few positions are? I'm like, I don't know where I'm gonna end up. I have no yeah. idea <laughs> because that's how we all are right now. Yep. It's not like we could be like, well, I want to be in the Northeast I'll have sector. the choice. Yeah. yeah, no, I'll be able to impose on the universe. But yeah, yeah it like definitely dated that professor because I was like, oh yeah, you really don't know what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> you have it to. It's post-pandemic and then it's all. Yeah.
that is it makes me feel the 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 privilege and like the how fortunate we are to be here as like the, there's lots of problems but also like we happen to be one of my one of the people I went to high school with ended up in an archaeology department in England. I don't remember which university, but the whole fucking department folded with the pandemic. And they had like students with ongoing degrees and like professors that had jobs and stuff. And they were just like, nope, we can't afford this. Well, because it's just going to disappear. And like, I was like, and they had this whole like petition and they were like, no, you can't like just destroy years lives. Yeah. Yeah. Like our careers, I think like all this stuff. And then like they did anyway. And I was like, that's insane. <laughs> right. But like, even like during the pandemic, I don't know, I suppose it felt really nice to be like, oh, like, yeah, like I feel like fortunate privilege that like they don't have to worry about that. Like I'm not, they're not going to actually disappear. Yeah. Like the whole degree, the whole department, the whole everything, just like, yeah. but like a lot of smaller universities, that's the case, which is like, to say nothing of like the kinds of stipends and stuff they can actually offer students, right? Just like the whole thing disappeared. I was like, oof. Um, which is a, connected to the getting a job thing later. That's not with this interior department to get jobs in. Um, but, but yeah, I, there's a lot wrong with McGill, big bad institutions. But it's also like a, a lot of good. Yeah, there's things that. Really there's always good where I think there's good people. Mm-hmm. If there's good people, I think good things are bound to follow. Yeah. You were also optimistic, and it's Ramadan. <laughs> She's like that all the time. That's nice. Well, I think a lot of grad students, particularly, it's really easy to get pessimistic, to put it lightly, uh, about the future and yeah. our work and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I'm glad you're doing this this podcast um, <laughs> because um, I think when I'm in a room with graduate students, all we end up doing is shit talking. Shit talking yeah, the institution. Not today, no. And um, you guys are all hope and optimism. Yeah, it's no, it was awesome. so great because there was a uh, there was a guest lecture by someone on slavery, and she was going oh. to the professor was going to be talking about inscriptions and everything, and I really wanted to attend that. And it was in a building that I did not know where it is on McGill cool. campus. It was in McTavish. Yeah, I. Is it called Peterson Hall? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like disappearing place. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's not about the place being. Dis- it's not about the place being disappearing. It's just about all I know is Burke's building and. Okay, we we have the best Which, libraries on campus. I you I opened up the maps and I was like, where's Peterson Hall? Mm-hmm. But I uh, went there and. It was the classic case of how social gatherings are for me. Yeah, I was like in the corner and there were people who knew each other. They were talking. I was like, great, everyone knows everyone. This is the best thing ever. And uh, then uh, Sabina (laughs) talked to me. She's like, hi, uh, hello, uh, I'm Sabina. And I was like, oh, I know about you. And uh, oh, then she started asking what I do, and uh, okay, Hamza, and then she went on and on, like, how 
I just went, came from a conference about Hans and she spilled all the beans about my advisor, which was, <laughs> which was good to hear. Yeah. I don't know how many beans there are. Right? He likes to party. Tom Sell loves to party. Do we all love to party? Yeah, but I think like he really <laughs> That's the friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. hopefully we'll find out soon. There's an end of term party. Guys, you need to tell me about these things. I just, Wait, we, we just, just got, got yeah, we just got the email. Yeah. Uh, which also means you have an obligation to to tell us about the cool events. We don't have anything. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> to be honest, but we you don't. You guys just have all these things. There was like the rules thing and everything. There was what? no the there was no rules. No, it was all it. Oh, yeah, okay. there was no like rules. social events. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. You did a thing. And they were like, everybody got I'm not sure if you know this, but you do have a very overwhelming reputation about Sabina's mm-hmm. events always have the best food. It's That's true. a good reputation. I, because I, I care about these things. And I learned from Garth and like religious studies. You guys always have like the good stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's <laughs> <laughs> With the nothing here, when Dean unfortunately passed, and then there was kind of like a what's mm. going on, and the university tried to shut us down, and all kinds of things happened. And then Professor Green ended up taking over, and he is very committed to Maybe you should just you know, change your route to be like, Today I'm going to hand out the quirks. I do that a this lot. Is a great I to, actually, I used to do this a lot. That's how I knew so many of the professors and students in religious studies. And I would just randomly, I'd be the one Islamic studies student who is here for all of your free food stuff. Totally, but it's also nice. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's so much. This is one of the like my real frustration with at least Miguel is the way that we're all so siloed in our own like departments, and we all do really similar shit. And it's like, why don't we just talk to each other about it? Like, we could have so mm-hmm. much more, such a richer perspective on these things if we just like talk to each other. But like, we don't even know who each other are. So it's like, I really love it when people show up to each other's events. Like, even when it's not your department, like totally. It's true. It's really, it's really important. Well, please, please come. I'm hosting Eid. Sorry? Eid, <laughs> like you're hosting. Thanks for Eid. For some reason, we don't do Eid at the Institute uh, of Islamic Studies. I don't know why. It's Maybe they'll change their mind this year. I don't know. They have a lot of they do secular Nuruz. people. They, they always do Nowruz. Oh. Because Nowruz is a pre Islamic holiday. It comes from Zoroastrianism. Yeah, but it's, Islam, it's not pre-Islamic Institute, it's Islamic. I know, but for some reason they never do Eid. I don't, I don't know if it was like something that they set up one year. Maybe I'll talk to our grad students and be like, hey, do you want to do something for Eid? Well, would um, you do something and then you can buy us and then we'll... For sure. But I am hosting a guest lecture in two weeks. Do we have food? Sorry, do you have food? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying hey, to... That's a very legit thing to ask. Do you have food? I think there will be some food. I'm, tr- I'm debating. So the thing is that it's during the day and and most of our, at least students, are fasting. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, do I bring uh, food? It's it's kind of a tricky thing. You I'll bring takeouts for them. Yeah, maybe. But there is a guest lecture and I'm inviting a professor from Northwestern to speak on Urdu poetry. So please come if you're like even slightly interested. Uh, I think it'll be really nice. You have an aesthetic, poetic bone in your body. Yeah, 
Actually, I don't even know if he's talking about Urdu poetry. He's probably talking about Urdu women's writing. He just came out the book like, last month. Very well. Travel writing, suffering What's he writing on? Um, he writes on uh, 19th and 20th century women, like um, the Begums from Bhopal and stuff like that, okay. who have suffering about like their trips to Mecca and things like that. Oh, this is Daniel Makrowitz. It'll be a really interesting talk. And he's a really chill guy. If you like Pasha, you'll like Daniel. <laughs> They're like the same. I realize we are so good at setting stuff up. 